I'm sure you have heard religious experts testify that if we could only talk to one another and try to understand each other, we could put away our weapons and live at peace. This approach ignores the reality and deadliness of evil. Listen as Dave Wurtzen, our Truth Encounter study leader, shares from Romans 3, verses 9 to 26, exactly how deadly evil is and why it took Christ's death to deal with sin. Why is it that as we attack evil that innocents have to die? And that really is a deeper question for me. As we think of the great Sunday, the Palm Sunday, we think of what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came into Jerusalem and all the crowds shouted Hosanna just like you did and they exalted him and they said he prayed to the son of David, prayed to the king of Israel and we rejoiced with those crowds. We, we all know the story that just the next few days afterward there was a great turning against Jesus and the religious leaders imprisoned him and they took him in trial and they accused him eventually they handed him over to the roman authorities so we have not just the jewish leaders but we also have the roman leaders and we have them all conspiring together and it places jesus on the cross one of the most incredible tragedies of the life of jesus is that here he is the one ultimate good man in fact, all of us would agree, as you think about the life of Jesus, when you read the records that we've been studying, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is the one ultimate good man. In fact, the scripture testifies that he never sinned, that he, that he never lied, he never was arrogant, he never cheated on anyone, he never gave in to immoral thoughts, he never gave in to illicit jealousy. Jesus was absolutely morally pure, and yet the story of our faith, the concrete reality of our faith, is that Jesus hung on a cross. And I want to ask the question this morning, why did Jesus have to die? Why did the one ultimate good man have to die? Because I think it's really important, I know a lot of you can answer that question, but I think at this time of the year it's important for me, and I think it's important for you to look back at the great foundations of, of what we're depending upon to go to heaven. And the issue of why did Jesus have to die is a very, very important question. And it's a question that you need to answer, not just theoretically, but I want you to know that one day, one day, you're going to be in the presence of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I don't care whether you're Buddhist, I don't care whether you're a Shintoist, I don't care whatever religion you might be, I don't care if you're a total secularist. Objective reality is that one day you're going to stand before God and his name will be Yahweh. He's going to be the God of the Jewish and the Christian scriptures. And you need to be ready for that day. And that gets right at the heart, gets right at the heart of what we want to look at in the book of Romans. There's probably no clearer place that we could go to find the answer to the question, why did the one ultimate good man have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? How would you answer that question? And then I would ask you this personally. What does it mean to you? Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 3 because Paul begins this whole discussion, we might say, of why did Jesus have to die by bringing to a, a conclusion and a point that he's been laboring ever since chapter 1 in the book of Romans. And we can look at his conclusion in verse 9 because Paul says, what shall we conclude? What he's been doing is going through a discussion. It's almost like an x-ray of your life and mine. 
The very first thing I want to talk to you about this morning when we ask this question, why did Jesus have to die, is we have to face the reality of something which our culture often doesn't face. Not just in the world, but in our hearts. Romans 3 is an internal x-ray of the condition of our hearts. I want you to ask yourself the question, what's the condition of your heart today? Now, we live in a society that ignores the reality of evil. You've seen someone that just lies, just absolutely lies, totally out of touch with reality, totally denying reality, but just lies. That's what evil does. Hitler did it. Hitler was in a bunker at the end of World War II with the Russian troops all over Berlin still commanding Panzer units that didn't even exist, German divisions that had totally been wiped out, totally deceiving, totally lying. In fact, lying so much that now he didn't even know what reality was himself. That's what evil does. What does evil do? It murders people. It uses human shields. You know, that's against all the rules. Well, evil is against all the rules. There's been a tremendous conflict going on over this question, is there evil? There's major groups in the world that don't believe that evil is a real thing. They think everything is relative. They don't have a standard of this is right and this is wrong. And that will help you to understand a lot of the debate because if you don't really believe that there's such a thing called wrong and if you don't believe there's such a thing called evil, then it totally controls the way you approach things. And you need to think very hard about that. Second of all, you've probably heard a lot of religious leaders who say that, yeah, there is evil, but what we need to do is we need to talk about it. In other words, if you and I will just sit down together, if we can just sit around a table, if we can look face to face, then we can deal with evil. Our conversation will deal with evil. We can come to an understanding. Lots of religious leaders believe that. They believe that there's this sentimental love that will somehow overpower evil just by talk, just by negotiation. What do you believe? The Apostle Paul comes thundering into my thinking and he cuts right across all the modern idea of relativism. There isn't any right, there isn't any wrong. It's whatever you think, it's whatever your personal opinion is. Suddenly Paul comes thundering into my mind and he comes thundering into your mind and he says, Dave... And he says to every one of you, there is the reality of evil. And that's his conclusion. Look at it in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Are Jewish people any better? And that's what he's been discussing. Are religious people any better? Are those that have circumcision, those that have all the sacrificial system in the first century, those that have all the beautiful traditions of Judaism, are they any better? And he answers the question, not at all. Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. I want you to know if you're going to understand the meaning of the cross, you need to understand, first of all, our state, our condition outside of Jesus. What is Dave? What's his condition outside of Jesus? What's your condition outside of Jesus? And Paul says, my condition and your condition outside of Jesus is under sin. And those are some of the strongest words that you could ever, ever say. Under sin means that we have joined a slavery, we've joined a war. It's that's in opposition to the holy, ultimate God. We are under sin. We have joined a state where the dominant reality of our entire movement as a human race is that we have joined the evil one and we are under sin. We're dominated by it, we're controlled by it, we're in that state. Now, that's a heavy point. 
Most people don't really believe that today. The truth of the matter is most of you believe uh, you're kind of a good old person. Everyone else is bad. We have a tremendous radar for how everyone else is bad except us. In fact, every one of us kind of jumped to relativism. Like, I'm bad, I know, but what about you? And then we make relative statements. And what Paul does is just take away that kind of judgment where we're comparing ourselves to one another. And he says, every single one of us are under sin. We're under that condemnation that comes because we're sinners. And then he, he uses the Old Testament to prove that point. What the Apostle Paul does in the next several verses, he strings together, beginning with Ecclesiastes, he goes right through the Psalms and he picks out one verse after another that hammers home this incredible, devastating attack and, and, and this legal verdict that's been leveled against us. We are under sin. Look what he says. First of all, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. That's the overall statement, the point that he's making. In this room today, you might be a member of a church for the last 30 years. You might be Jewish, keeping all your traditions. You might be an Islamic person, keeping all the traditions of Islam. And Paul just levels all of us and said, there's no one righteous. And what that means is he's saying there's no one that conforms to the standards of God's holy character. He's saying that there is an ultimate God out there. And you can believe whatever you want to about God. It's not going to change the reality of what God is like and who he is. The ultimate God is really there. And the ultimate God that's really there has standards. And those standards have been revealed probably in the most blazing revelation of his holy character is in the Ten Commandments. And those kind of become a central summary of, of what his righteous standards are. And what the Apostle Paul is thundering to us from the book of Ecclesiastes and also from the Psalms is that there is none of us that conform to those standards, not even one. Every one of us have failed to obey the righteous, moral, ethical standards that God has given to us. There is no one who understands. None of us really comprehend God. In other words, if you think you can get to God by thinking hard about it, by studying philosophy about it, by studying comparative religions, the Bible tells us that in our under-sin state, that if you go to university and you try to figure God out and you study all the different religions, that you're not going to understand him. That you'll mess it up. That you'll come up with a false god. You'll end up creating an idol. You'll end up creating a false god. There's none of us that really understand. And then even worse, there's none of us who even seeks God. That's a powerful statement. It's saying that in our own strength, that in our own being, that Dave Wurzen, in his own nature, outside of Jesus, I don't even seek God. I seek myself. How about you? I think about myself. I'm concerned about myself. I'm seeking the benefit of me. I worship me. So do you. Outside of Jesus, that's where we are. None of us seek after God. We all have this false notion that everybody really wants to find God and we're all climbing up the mountain and we all really want to serve God. That's a lie. Paul exposes the reality. It's like an x-ray that says, this is really the condition of your human heart. There is none of us that can ever comprehend and understand God. We mess it up mentally. We get the wrong picture. We come up with the wrong conclusions. In fact, none of us really are seeking the true God. In fact, we're headed the opposite direction. We're seeking our own glory and our own life. So much so that most people act as if God doesn't even exist in their everyday life. They run to him when they're a little bit of trouble. But most of the time, it's easy for most people just to ignore him. There's none that seek after God. 
not even one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Paul's reaffirming that point. There is none righteous, no, not one. We have become like that what should be discarded. The idea of worthlessness here in the Old Testament is used of, of what happens to somebody who's turning away from God, rejecting his standards, rejecting his law. And it says that they become like rubbish that should just be trashed. Very strong statements about our condition outside of Jesus. We become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Then he talks about our tongues, our throats and our tongues, what we do with our speech in verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is in their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Think about your own speech. Think about what I do with my tongue. Think about what you do with your tongue. What does Paul say? He says, outside of Christ, what we do, first of all, is our tongues are like open graves. I think the picture here is that when we open up our tongue, it causes death. It hurts people because we sin with our tongue. And the way to the sin is death. And what we do is our tongue, when we open up our mouth, it reveals a sepulcher. It reveals that our heart is dead. It reveals that our inner life has died. It reveals that we're in this state under sin. Death is one of the ugliest things, a a sepulcher, a graveyard, a tomb. That's not a place that we want to go. And yet that's our condition. Our tongue reveals that our inner being is a sepulcher and and outflowed. Instead of flowing living water and good things, evil things flow forth, deadly things. It says their tongues practice deceit, lying. Think about just this last week, what we do with our tongue. We deceive. We use it to lie to one another. As soon as we're in a crunch, as soon as we're under a little bit of pressure, we'll deceive, we'll lie. You ever done that? Can anybody remember a situation in your life where you have deceived someone, where you have lied to somebody, where you haven't really communicated the truth to them? The Apostle Paul is saying that every one of us have a tongue that's a lying tongue. What makes it so evil is because it destroys all communication. It destroys all intimacy. There's impossible to get to know someone, to get close to somebody who you can't trust what they say. One of the most frustrating things in the world is to be dealing with somebody that never tells you the truth. And they deceive you because you're you're trying to get to know them, trying to find out what's going on, trying to get close to them. But they keep giving you a veneer. It says that every one of us have a tendency to do that with our tongue. We have a lying tongue. We have a deceitful tongue. The poison of vipers is on their lips. We think of a snake. All of us are afraid of snakes. Well, maybe a few of you aren't. But you think of a viper, you know, like you're mowing the grass, and suddenly there's a rattlesnake that's out there, and you hear that rattle, and it strikes at you. And that poison hits your leg, and that's a horrible thing. I mean, that'll give some of you nightmares for the next three weeks. But what it's saying is that we raise up our heads like a viper and we bite one another. And then we send poison through one another's lives. What we do with our speech, what we do with our tongue. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Instead of bringing healing to people, we use our tongue. We hiss at people and then we strike at them and we send the poison of lies. We send the poison of hurtful things that are said against them. One of the ways that sin manifests itself according to the Apostle Paul, is it manifests itself through the way that we talk. And there's a deadliness in the way we talk. It's a sepulcher. 
There's a deceitfulness and a lying which is, which is pictured very powerfully with this imagery of that we become like a snake because we become some of the snake's children. The poignant of vipers is on our lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Just think of your life before you knew Jesus, some of you. You'll find out there's cursing. What's wrong with using all those four-letter words? And think about all what all those four-letter words mean. GD and JC. Using all those words. Why do you do that? Because you're angry deep inside. There's a hostility, so you curse everything. Instead of blessing, instead of being thankful to God, you live in a world where you think everything is against you, that you've gotten the raw deal so that you curse, and there's bitterness in your heart. That's what sin does. Our tongue becomes a deadly thing that lies and that bites people and, and sends poison through the lives of human relationships. And then it, this bitterness and this cursing becomes part of the way that we're living day by day. That's what it means to be under sin. And the way of peace they did not know. Says their feet are swift to shed blood, verse 15. Now we move to murder, what we do with our hands, what we do with our feet. We run into violently shedding blood. A lot of you have thrown your hand up in exasperation. Why did they kill each other? Why did so much murder in the Middle East? And, and we all have this idea that it's just Middle Easterners that have that murderous violence. That's wrong. It's involved in all of us. As we get bitter toward one another, as we curse one another, it can cause a son to want to kill his father. It can cause a father to want to kill a son. And we have tremendous hostility that breaks out in our human relationships. And it leads to murder, just like it did with Cain and Abel, the very first brothers born on planet Earth. It says that part of our existence under sin is that we're swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way. And the way of peace they do not know. The idea here is that there's no way that in our own human strength, that we're going to find the way of peace. The United Nations is not ultimately going to be able to find the way of peace. You're not going to be able to find the way of peace in your human relationships. You're not going to be able to find togetherness and, and love and unity. Because we don't know the way of peace. We know the way of lying. We know the way of murder. We know the way of cursing. Paul's really strong. It's not very good news. This is really, really bad news. It's the reality of evil. This is reality. This is part of what's in a fallen world. And this is the guts of it. That there's none that are seeking after God. There is none that are conforming to his standards. And this is the way to express itself. And he concludes by saying there is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is the foundation of your life with God. Like Proverbs 1 will say, the reverence of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, a respectfulness of him, an understanding of his greatness, of his power, a submission to him, a trust in him. The reverence of God is the foundation that you build a holy life upon. And he said that there's none of that in our lives. There's no reverence for God. There's no respect of God. That's why we curse him with our mouth. It's why we ignore him half the time. He said there's no reverence for God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, all of those things are statements from Psalms, from Ecclesiastes, and from Isaiah. You can see all the context that the Apostle Paul is using. And what he does is he takes verses that, that bring out those that are rebellious against the Lord and those that are wicked against him, and he shows that they pertain to every one of us. As we look at our life, as you look at your life this morning, as I look at my life this morning, outside of Jesus, 
looking just at the moral law of God, I am under sin. And there's a reality of evil. This isn't pretend. It's not up for grabs. It doesn't make any difference what your opinion is about it or what my opinion is about it. One day we're going to see me for a righteous, holy God who says lying is an unpardonable offense. One day we're going to see me for a holy God that when we curse somebody or when we curse him, he's saying it's an unpardonable offense. It's worthy of death. When we are deceitful with our tongue and we lie, it's an unpardonable offense. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the conclusion of all this is that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. I think Paul is thinking here of the Jewish person because the Jewish person wanted to say, well, I'm under the law. That brings me blessing. I got circumcised. I worship at the temple. I offer the sacrifices. And the apostle Paul is saying, Jewish person says, I'm under the law. He says, under the law, your religion is not going to save you. It's going to condemn you. Because you have failed to really understand the depth of what God's law was really saying. It wasn't just external things like circumcision. It wasn't just like worshiping in the temple. It wasn't just having beautiful ceremonies. The law exposed what was really going on inside. And when it's exposed what's really going on inside, we find out that the reality of evil isn't just out there. And it's someone like Saddam Hussein or Hitler. But the reality of evil is inside of Dave Wurtzen. It's inside of you. The Apostle Paul concludes in, in this section about the law, he's saying that under the law, every mouth is silenced and the whole world is held accountable to God. We live in a world that no one wants to be accountable. Nobody wants to be responsible. The idea is you should just let people off. That's contrary to reality. It's not the way life works. It's not the way reality is. And the Apostle Paul has the guts to be able to say every one of us is accountable. This is what we are. This is what we are under the law. This is what God's law exposes about us. And we are accountable for that. And we can't say, well, wait a minute, Lord, you know, you didn't understand so and so and so and so. One of the things that sin does is it always has an excuse. In my own life, whenever I want to sin and whenever I'm being tempted to sin, there's a whole series of excuses that come up. Haven't you noticed that in your own life? Like, as soon as you're doing wrong, you start having, but this, but this, but this, but this. It would be because of this and this and this and this. The Apostle Paul thunders forth in the courtroom of God and says, silence in the courtroom. There is no excuse. There are no rationalizations. This is not some human judge that doesn't know what's going on. This is the Lord God of the universe, and he knows every one of our hearts, and we're silent before him because the just penalty that we deserve is totally clear. The whole world is accountable before him. You live in a world that doesn't believe that. You live in a world that wants to make up its own God, make up its own way to God. And what I'm teaching is objectively the case. One day when you die, you're going to be face to face with the true God who holds all the world accountable to him. I hold in my hand a book that has revelation that goes right back to Adam and Eve. God talked to Adam and Eve. God talked to Cain, even after he murdered his brother. God dealt with the world under Noah. God began to call Abraham to himself. That's where the Jewish people came from. You hold in your hand a book that goes right back to the beginning of time where all of us come from, and the Bible is claiming that the living God that created all of us holds everybody in the world accountable. We're all under the accountable sentence of death. Now, that's really tough news, strong news, news that we often don't hear today. 
But I want you to know it's the truth. It's absolutely the truth. There's a reality of evil in the world. And I think today, I think a lot of you have said, yeah, evil's in our face. We live in a modern culture where people are brutally murdered like crazy, more than ever before in history. Women aren't even safe to walk on the streets. They're raped and hurt. Fathers abuse their children. Children abuse their parents. We live in a society where evil is just rampant around us, and we all act as if it's not real. It's just pretend. And Paul says, oh, no, it's true. Evil is real. But more powerfully, says David, evil's real in your own heart. What about you? Evil's real in your heart. She says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, verse 20. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. As Paul exposes the reality of evil, it raises the issue. What are we going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? It's like a doctor that takes an x-ray and says, man, you've got a really bad malignancy. It's going to take you out. Well, my next question is, Doc, what are we going to do about it? And some of you have come up with an answer. What I'm going to do about it is I'm going to join a religious group or I'm going to join a particular club or I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to get more religious. A Jewish person says, I'm going to go to synagogue and I'm going to keep my Jewish traditions. If you're, uh, if you're a Mormon, you're going to say, man, I need to go to Salt Lake City and I need to hear the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and on and on. If you're a Hindu, you're going to say, I'm going to meditate more and I'm going to be really careful not to hurt cows and I'm not going to eat meat and, and you're going to go on and on and on. And I can expand what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is saying that none of you will ever deal with your sentence of death. You're not going to deal with what your sin is generating in your life, which is the sentence of death, by obeying the law, because you've already broken it. You're not going to be able to be religious enough. You're not going to be able to be good enough. It's a very powerful thing you say. The Apostle Paul levels all of human society. The very best religion that's ever been given is Judaism, as it's presented in the Old Testament. In fact, if you totally obeyed all that Moses revealed, you'd go to heaven. That's true. If you did the sacrifice this writing, you kept the Ten Commandments, and you kept all the regulations of Leviticus, and, and did what Numbers told you to do, and lived out the book of Deuteronomy, if you did it perfectly, like Jesus did, Jesus did. Jesus totally fulfilled all the law of Moses. Jesus totally fulfilled the heart of what his heavenly father demanded. There is a man that's done it. And Jesus can rightfully go to heaven and say, here I am, I fulfilled your righteousness, Father. But I don't think there's one of you in the room, and boy, I sure wouldn't. There's not one of you in the room that says, man, I'm going to stand there with Jesus. Jesus, you and I did it. I can do it. I did it just like you. Man, I cringe when I talk about lying. It's a besetting weakness in my own life when I'm under pressure. I don't lie. Bad lies, I just stretch things a little bit or... I ease it a little bit. I've often joked with you about, you know, Mary said, did you take out the garbage? Yes. The garbage is sitting right there. But I don't come out with, I will take the garbage out in five minutes. I just say, I just declare lies. Yeah, I took the garbage out. No, I didn't. That's what we all do. The Apostle Paul is saying, Dave, that reveals what's really going on in your heart. Your tongue is deceitful. It's poisonous. The very people that love me the most, there's a part of me that, that's bitter against them and that hurts them. Same thing's true in your life. The Apostle Paul says that we're never going to deal with the reality of evil by getting more religious or by trying to be moral or by trying to obey the law. And then we switch to some glorious good news. It says in the very next verse, but now, but now, but now. 
The law makes us conscious of sin, but now as we come to the consciousness of our sin and we, we realize, man, I need help and I need God to do something for me, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to us to which the law and the prophets testify. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, you're not going to be able to conform to God's standard. You're not going to be able to conform to this holy character by your own obedience to the law. You're not going to be able to do it through religion. You're not going to be able to do it through turning over a new leaf by be, trying to be more ethical but more moral. But what he says, and this is the incredible change, he says, but there's incredible good news that's been revealed. And the incredible good news that's been revealed is that God, the ultimate judge, has given a new righteousness. That's a, a new way to be able to be like him, a new way to conform to him. And he says that it's apart from the law. You're not going to have to be, try to obey the moral standards in your own strength. You're not going to have to try to be more religious. He doesn't give a new system, but he reveals his righteousness in a new way. What does he say? But now a righteousness from God has been made apart from the law. And he says that the law and the prophets predicted that this day would come. So I want you to know, if you're Jewish, that what I'm teaching you from the book of Romans is totally consistent because the same Old Testament that revealed the Ten Commandments also revealed that we wouldn't be able to obey them. And it also revealed Isaiah 53, that God would provide a servant who would bear the penalty for us. The Apostle Paul is going to be very strong on this. In Romans 4 and 5, he's going to show that Abraham was saved by depending upon this other way of righteousness. Not a works righteousness, but a faith righteousness. Very important to understand that if you're Jewish, we're not nullifying the Old Testament scriptures. We're getting it to the heart of it. The Old Testament itself said that there would be a righteousness that would come as a gift from God. Jeremiah 31 talks about God creating himself inside of us, giving us a new life, a new covenant it's called. That's what Paul's alluding to. Now what is this? What's the essential thing that Jesus has done? Why did Jesus have to die? And he explains it very clearly. It says this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. So what he's saying is that there's going to be a new righteousness. We're going to be able to conform to God's sinner. We're going to be able to be declared not guilty before the courtroom of heaven. But it's not going to be because we work for it. It's not going to be because we earn it. But it's going to be because of a totally different thing. It's going to be because I look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to depend upon you. I trust you. Now, why do we need to trust in Jesus? And this gets right at the heart of our question that we started out with. Why did the ultimate good man have to die? And it's because for all have sinned. Some verses you've all learned from the very beginning. For all have sinned. That's Paul's statement of what I've been teaching you all morning. For all have sinned. I have concluded that every human being is under sin. For all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We fail to possess what God created us to be, the reflection of himself. Like Adam was supposed to bring praise to God and glory to God, and instead he rebels against God, one of his very first acts. We fall short of being what we're supposed to be. We don't conform to God's glory. That's what it means there. It means that we, we don't fulfill God's purpose for us. We're not like him. We don't reflect his character. We do just the opposite. We join the rebel band and become like this tyrannous group of people. And that's us. But he goes on and says, For all of sin and fall, sure the glory of God. But man, I love these next words. I love these next words. And are justified. We're justified freely by his grace. You know what that meant? How many of you are sinners? How many of you, according to what I've said, would be condemned, eternally separated from God? 
How many of you would love to be in that courtroom and suddenly God says, you can walk out scot-free? Have you ever seen a prisoner that's been acquitted? You ever seen it in drama? Some of you have seen it in actual life to find out one of the most traumatic scenes in a courtroom is when the jury didn't stand up and read the verdict. But you know what God did? God just stood up in his courtroom and he said, trust in my son. Believe in my son. And all those that do that, he says, you're acquitted. You can walk out of here scot-free. In fact, much more than that, he says, I want to welcome you into my family. I'm going to make you my child. I'm going to make you one of my children forever and ever and ever. And this person that was a rebel and that was an evil, worthless, wicked person suddenly is declared, because of what Jesus did, forgiven. Now, how did Jesus do that? How did Jesus do that? He did it by redeeming us by his death. Now, notice what it said, redeeming us by his blood. It says, God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiatory, as a sacrifice that dealt with his wrath against us. Romans chapter 1 talks about now the wrath of God is being revealed against these kinds of things, these kinds of people. And Romans 3 that we've looked at today summarizes that argument, saying that God's holy, righteous judgment, whether we like it or not, and you've seen a strong example of the fact that there comes a time when evil has to be dealt with. And the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, predicts that the ultimate king of kings is going to send his general into the world. And the next time Jesus comes into the world, it's going to be by power and might. And he's going to deal with evil with his omnipotence. But Paul right now is telling us that Jesus, in his first coming, dealt with evil in the most incredibly beautiful and most incredibly powerful one of the most unbelievable twists that ever took place. It says that he who knew no sin redeemed us. We were slaves to sin. Now we've been set free. In the Old Testament, the Jews would think of themselves being enslaved in Egypt and Yahweh redeemed them from Egypt by his powerful outstretched arm. That's the imagery that we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross of Calvary, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He rescued us from the ultimate Pharaoh that was dominating our life. He has redeemed us through Jesus Christ. How did he do that? He did that by God, God the Father. So don't think of God. God's wrathful against sin. But God is totally involved in all that's happening in redemption. God the Father, it's like he pictures himself taking his son. And God the Father presented him, the Lord Jesus as the atoning sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in the forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And this gets it right at the heart of what's happening. What God the Father is saying is that every one of us justly deserve to be eternally separated from him because evil's real and evil is real in our hearts. But the incredible good news is that God provided another way. And what God did is he took his son 
And just like the priest in the Old Testament would go into the Holy of Holies, and on the mercy seat, only once a year would he go into the Holy of Holies, and the mercy seat was pure gold, and inside that chest were the Ten Commandments, and above that gold mercy seat, the top of that chest was the holy Shekinah glory of God, the majesty of God, the sinlessness of God, the holiness of God. And the law separates us from ever being able to partake of that glory. In fact, that glory, like the priest, can only go in there once a year and he has to be carefully cleansed and they put a rope on his leg because he might not make it out because that's all the symbol of he's going in there to represent the sins of the people and maybe the righteous, holy judgment of God will come forth. And that priest can only go in there by taking the blood of a lamb and the lamb's blood is put on that altar and God covers, he covers the sins of the people. But the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of those bulls and goats and lambs could never have forgiven sin. And that's why Paul says, for all the centuries, God was forbearing. He didn't just execute people. He didn't just kill them. He didn't just execute his righteous, holy justice against them. He was forbearing. He was patient. Why was he patient? Because he said God was looking forward to the time when his son Jesus would be the ultimate Day of atonement for us. He would be the ultimate sacrifice. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is what God is saying. God is saying, David, your sin deserves eternal judgment. And you're a liar and you're wicked and you curse and you're sinful. And the penalty for that is death. And Jesus takes my penalty on the cross of Calvary, as Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus had all of my sins taken upon him, all of your sins taken upon him. Like when the high priest would get the lamb ready for the day of atonement, he would place his hand on the lamb, and by doing so, he would be saying, I'm taking the sins of the people, and I'm placing them on the lamb. And the lamb was the representative of the people. And instead of the people having to die, the lamb died, and his blood was shed. And God the Father placed his hand on his own son. And he said to you, your sin, your sin, your sin. I placed it upon my son. My son's going to be your representative. He's going to take your place. We call it the substitutionary atonement. And Jesus didn't die just to be a good example for you, although he's an ultimate example of suffering. And we need to follow his path of suffering. And First Peter tells us that's part of what Jesus did, provide an example for us. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know that Jesus did far more than just provide the example of a good man who sacrificed himself. Socrates did that, and it has nothing to do with your sin question. But God the Father put his hand in his son, and he transferred your sin upon that son. And when Jesus cried out on the cross of Calvary, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost, gave up his spirit, and he died. Jesus justly and totally paid for your sin. Every one of you, as we close this service, can walk out scot-free. That's why we call it Good Friday. You don't need to feel guilty. I just had to wrestle with somebody in our church family because Satan is bringing great guilt upon them, great condemnation upon them, great dread, great darkness. And it's a lie from the evil one. And some of you will go through those times where you feel so dirty, you feel so guilty. 
And that's when you need to go back to the cross. You need to realize what objectively happened there. What happened objectively at the cross is Jesus, in reality, in history, objectively, Jesus paid it all. And God the Father is the one who's the ultimate judge. And he says, Jesus' death in your place totally pays your penalty, totally pays the guilt of your sin. None of you need to go out of this room feeling guilty for your sin. None of you need to feel you're going to need to pay for your lies. None of you need to feel like you're going to pay for your adultery. You need to realize Jesus paid it all. That's what it means that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's what it means that God's judges say God was forbearing, now he can forgive because God in his holy justice, God says justice demands the wage of the sin is death. And God's justice says, my son, the infinite son of God, who became the perfect man, he paid an infinite holy sacrifice that can cover all the sins of the world. And all that you and I have to do, this is the simple gospel. The simple gospel is all you need to do is say, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I'm going to depend upon you to deal with my sin. I'm going to believe that when you died, that that paid the bill. I'm going to believe with all my heart that that satisfies the just demands of God. And I want you to know if you trust in that sacrifice, then this morning is truly a hallelujah day. And you can shout, pray to the Son of God, because you are God's child forever. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the laws of sin and death. If you've never received Jesus like that, if you've just thought of Jesus being a good prophet or a good religious teacher, then as we bow our heads, why don't you say, Jesus, now I understand the meaning of the cross and invite Jesus to come into your life. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone that's never really understood why Jesus had to die, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would help them to understand Paul's powerful words, some of the most powerful words that have ever been written on why Jesus had to die. Lord, I can't make them understand because you've told us that there's none that understand and none that seek. But the miracle is that your Holy Spirit speaks the hearts this morning. And I would ask you, Lord, that anyone that hasn't come to the cross would come to the cross. I want to ask you, Lord, for the majority of my brothers and sisters who already know Jesus today. I'd ask you, Lord, that on this holy week, that the answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die? to meet the just demands of a righteous, holy God. Jesus, the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, took my place. And you are totally satisfied, totally agreeing that that was the payment that needed to be made. I'd ask you, Lord, that every one of my brothers and sisters that have believed in that incredible gift of grace would revel in the forgiveness that flows from what Christ did for us. I pray that we would defeat the light of the evil one that attack us. I'd ask you, Lord, that we would rejoice today that therefore there is now no condemnation. Oh, Lord, you just, just deliver any one of my brothers and sisters this morning that are living under a false guilt of Satan's attacking them. After they've come to you, I pray that they will realize that you are not condemning them, you are not rejecting them, but because of what Christ has done, you have given them freely and graciously your eternal forgiveness. And they don't need to be afraid anymore. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.